If you're not familiar with what is called the Heidelberg Catechism, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it came out during the time of the Reformation and is one of my favorite documents from that time period because it's very practically laid out. The reason I'm telling you this is because the very first question it asks in that catechism is what is our only hope in life and death? And our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. And it, it begins to elaborate and enumerate that beautiful, beautiful truth. That's one of, the, uh, one of the best things about that catechism is how pragmatic and practical it is and how it just gets to the heart of things. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to work your way through it sometime. You will be blessed by reading through it. Please take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of 1 Timothy. This morning we resume our study here. As we make our way through this first chapter this morning, we will bring it to a close, looking at verses 12 to 20. As we know, it's, <clears throat> of course, last week we heard from Will, and so now we're picking back up. The, the last time we met together and looked at Timothy, we saw that Paul, after giving the introduction, starts right out of the gate by warning Timothy how to deal with false teachers and the necessity for Timothy to deal with them and deal with them quickly. Uh, and to bring sound doctrine, that's his primary weapon, Paul says. The primary weapon against false, uh, false teaching is sound doctrine. And sound doctrine, where do we get sound doctrine from? Well, we get sound doctrine from the Word of God itself by rightly dividing the Word of truth and understanding the precepts. And so often, doctrine in, in, in from Scripture is relatively straightforward and simple. It's when we try to make room for other fleshly or worldly ideas that we tend to complicate doctrine. Doctrine is generally a very simple thing. There are some complex issues in the Bible, no doubt, but the message of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible is straightforward, and it's meant to be simple. It's meant to be so that all can understand it. And so Paul is simply telling Timothy, well, you know what sound doctrine is. You've learned it from me. Now make sure as you are engaging in the culture, the people around you, there are false ideas that are going to come now make sure that you are engaging those people, not with your opinion, not with the latest scholarship, but with sound doctrine of the Word. And that, that kind of charge is laid on you and laid on me, that we combat the world's uh, assault on truth and assault on knowledge and assault on what is ethical with the simple truth of God's Word. And may we, like Martin Luther, say, here I stand, I can do no other. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 20, where Paul is continuing this line of thought, is now expanding a little bit. And uh, so without further delay, let's turn our attention to the Word of God itself. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant Word. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you might wage war, or you might wage the good warfare. Holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Pray with me now. Father, the Word is open, and we are here. We are here to receive, to grow, to be fed, and to be transformed. And we pray that you would do all those things. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Um, it's been a while since I've used a Lord of the Rings reference, so you're going to get one this morning. One of the, one of the clearest themes out of, that, out of that epic tale is something that you might not pick up on, but it's mercy. It's mercy. And if you don't know the characters, just bear with me for a few minutes. Um, if you do know them, relish in what I'm about to say. Uh, Frodo, one of the main characters, is upset that he's now got this journey that he's got to make, and he's thinking about this creature that's called Gollum that is gangly and gnarly and evil, and he makes this statement and said, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. He says this in anger, and Gandalf, being the ever-wise one, says, well, actually, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. And Gandalf says, Bilbo's pity may one day rule the fate of many. And indeed it does. The ring is destroyed because Gollum was not killed. And I'm, I'm, I'm giving you, a, I'm, I'm ruining it if you've never seen it. So I'm just telling you what's happening. Uh, the ring is ultimately destroyed because Gollum steals it back. And in glee, dancing, because he's got his precious back, he falls into a big pit of lava. Um, but the main thing I want you to get out of that is mercy. <laughs> Maybe I didn't think this one through well enough. <laughs> what makes that such a beautiful picture of mercy is that Gollum didn't deserve mercy, and guess what? We don't either. None of us do. And yet mercy was shown, and it's rich and beautiful. If we think about mercy, mercy can never be earned. <laughs> It can never be earned or merited or it can't be a wage or it's, or it's, you know, it's not mercy. Mercy can only be given to one who is unworthy of it. And that's the beautiful truth of Scripture. Beloved, it's not coincidental or unimportant that Paul follows the charge about sound doctrine with a paragraph on God's mercy, on God's mercy to him and how that mercy ripples out. When we think about the redemption of Christ and the resurrection that He has provided for us and that He, uh, give the life that we gain through that, it comes by God's mercy. You and I, we stand on truth and we proclaim truth, not because we're strong in and of ourselves, but because of God's mercy to us. Having withheld some things that we deserved so that we would be worthy to walk and stand with Him. Without God's mercy, we are dead in our sins. Without God's mercy, we are walking in the way of the world. Without God's mercy, we're imbibing the ethic of our culture rather than what is true and good and beautiful. And so we, it's good that we should pause and remember the mercy of God. You know why pride is such a root sin in so many things? Because pride says precisely the opposite. I don't need mercy. I am strong. I am good. I am whole. All in myself. That's what pride does. So what pride does 
is exalts us above the mercy of God, saying, it's not that I'm unworthy of God's mercy, it's that God's mercy is unworthy of me. I'm the captain of my fate. That's what pride does. That's why mercy is so invaluable to the Christian, because what mercy does is it snatches us down from our heights and says, no, you are here. You are lowly. You are needy. You are weak. You need what Christ can give you. And so we love to talk about mercy. We just sang about mercy. We pray for mercy. I want to challenge us. Do we, are, are we spending time in our daily lives earnestly praising God for His many mercies? And when we see what Paul does, Paul just breaks out in doxology after he talks about it. Moved by God's mercy so to the point that in, in his letter to Timothy, he stops to praise for a moment because of what God's mercy has done for him. Man, may God's mercy be on our lips. May God's mercy be thick in our hearts because there's not a soul in this room, if you call Jesus Lord, who got to where you are because you were good enough, smart enough, strong enough, or able enough. You got to where you were because God reached down into the cesspool of our lives and snatched us out of it. And he set our, he set our feet on a rock, right? That's what the Psalms say. And so now that our foundation is sure, why? Because we were smart enough to, to make the right decisions? No, because of God's mercy. And then God changes the mind and the heart, and he reshapes how we think. When we think about mercy, some mercies hurt. We would call those severe mercies. It hurts. It's painful to walk through, but it is a severe mercy of God, and we are the better for it. Some mercies relieve and restore. We would call those sweet mercies or moments of restoration and relief when they come at just that right time, and it is sweet balm to the soul. But we're all debtors to mercy, every last one of us. We're debtors to mercy, and by God's new morning mercies, we will finish the race set before us. So Paul paused in doxology when he considered the mercy of God. I think that we should too. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this. By God's mercy, we are saved, and by God's mercy, we are emboldened for service. By God's mercy, we're saved and emboldened for service. When we look at mercy, there is a power to it. Mercy has, if you look at what mercy's done, we think about grace, right? We think about what a powerful thing grace is, that the grace of God uh, has just transformed us. Well, we need to think of mercy as a twin pillar with grace. Grace and mercy work in tandem, and so there's a power to mercy. As mercy uh, begins to work in our lives, and as God is working His mercy in our lives, it fundamentally changes who we are. It has to. When we think about mercy being one of those twin pillars of the gospel, we understand mercy is essentially God has withheld something that we deserved, i.e. His wrath, and placed it on Christ. And God is constantly working in our lives through mercies, whether it's withholding or sending things there to help us grow in Him, to help us be rooted in Him, and to help us be transformed. And so Paul here, as he's looking at this paragraph, as he picks back up, He's beginning with mercy. He's expounding on the mercy of God in his own salvation. So he starts, literally, I give thanks or I thank him who has given me strength. Where Paul immediately begins when he's telling Timothy about God's mercy in his life, he immediately begins with complete gratitude. Gratitude 
to the Lord who gave him strength. So what Paul is telling you, something is very vital for us as we understand how this works. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the source of his strength? Paul says, Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the source of your and my strength? Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ has made Paul strong to serve. So it's the Lord's strength that judged him, or that because of the Lord's strength, Paul is judged faithful. Because of the Lord's strength, Paul is in service. And so we understand that the motivating factor in service and faithfulness is the Lord's strength. That's the point. And it's a mercy of God. Paul kind of goes on there. So he says, he's appointed me to service. And then he gives us his history, a brief, kind of a graphic look at his history, very brief though. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Insulter, you could say. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul's former life, when, we, when you take those three descriptions, we could, we could parse them all out. We don't have to because it's not about the three words specifically. Those words were very intentionally chosen. But what Paul is trying to do is just sum up his former life as a life of sin. So he's trying to tell you, I blasphemed, you know, I spoke against God, I persecuted, I hurt the people of God, and I was an insolent opponent or an insulter, I brought hard words against the people of God. So what Paul is trying to tell us is very simple. I was a sinner, (laughs) and I hated God, even though I thought I loved God. Really, his hatred for God came out when the truth of Christ came on the scene. So Paul is simply trying to say, I sought to deny Christ and hurt his people. And I want, us to, I want us to grasp something here, because this is important. When he's telling you about his former life, notice now, he makes no mention of his achievements, no mention of his accomplishments, no mention of his academic prowess. Because despite all his learning, despite all his academic accomplishments and everything else, Paul is saying, I was chiefly a sinner. That's my, that was my identity. And I sought to be an enemy of the Lord, actively. And so, why are we building the case like this? Because when we get to this word here, when it says, but I received mercy, that is powerful. Because Paul is telling you, the mercy that I received was not earned. I, didn't, I wasn't worthy of it. It was freely given to me. This word there, but I'm going to get technical for just a second, is what's called a strong adversative. And what that means is simple. That means it's completely changing directions of the sentence. So Paul has listed out all, the, all his wretchedness pre-Christ. And then we would call this, you know, but God. That's one of those statements. It changes the flow of thought. That God's mercy was extended to Paul, he says, because I'd acted in ignorant unbelief. So what we take from this is that Paul, or God's mercy rather, was in spite of how Paul lived his life. But it's, it's curious the way he says it. But, he says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, that raises a question. Is he giving some sort of you know, God acted because Paul had done something. No, that's not Paul's point here. Paul is saying precisely because I was a big, fat sinner, 
God showed mercy to me. Precisely because I was lost in my own death and wretchedness, God showed mercy to me because God reaches out to those who cannot reach back, who are not trying to reach out, who are being rescued from death and hell and all manner of evil. And so, to take it to heart, what, what are we seeing here? That we're seeing that this is a sinner who needs salvation. And we know that God had to show mercy to Paul because in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul talks about being set apart at birth for the work of God. And if Paul is ever going to do the work of God, God's mercy has to come find him in his own wretched state and raise him up. And that's exactly what God did. God did it for Paul. If you're in Christ this morning, he did it for you. He did it for me. And what a powerful, mighty God we serve. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying here? That the work of salvation is purely of God's grace. Again, he uses a word that is so cool to think about. The word there, overflowed, literally means to gush. So think of a spring just gushing out water or a well gushing up oil or water. And so what Paul is telling us is that the grace of our Lord gushed over my sin, washing it away, making me new. So the filth that normally or that formerly defined Paul was washed away by the grace of God. And again, I would say the same is true of you if you are in Christ this morning. But he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And what this tells us is something of vital importance. When the grace of God works in the heart of a believer, two things will always be true and present. Faith and the love of Christ will be in us. Will be. Those are the things that grace seeks to work. Faith, a stronger, deeper faith, and the love of Christ. So when we think about grace, sometimes people have a warped view of it. Grace is not license, right? Grace is not offering, it's, it's not, hey, the capacity to just move on with life without worrying too much because, hey, you're saved anyway. You can get away with things. Grace is quite the opposite of that. The grace of God is not to give us license so we can do whatever we want. The grace of God is poured over us so that we can be saved, so that we can grow in faith and faithfulness, and so that we can share the love of Christ with one another and our world. It's meant very intentionally to move us into a Christian ethic and keep us there. So it's not how far can I go. What it does is it grounds us in what is real and right and true. And what, is, what does grace do? Grace, as it works, faith in us, it also compels us to love God. It also compels us to love our neighbor, the two pinnacles of the law. So grace is compelling us to live obediently to Christ and to show the love of Christ to our world, to stand on truth, to be bold in our truth, to be bold in our love, to be bold in our grace. Grace frees us from living life like a you owe me. By grace, I can lay it all down to the glory of God. 
and you can too. Doesn't mean you should every time. We've got to be wise. But grace releases us in a powerful way to live the life of Christ. And may it do it more and more and more in Brad Williams and you. Paul goes on, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is one of those verses that is just a beautiful gospel statement, a very simple, straightforward gospel statement. When Paul says the saying is trustworthy, he's telling us that it's completely valid, completely true, and something that we should take to heart. It's a gospel truth. Imbibe it. Believe it. Drink it in. Use it in your life. And he just makes the gospel statement. Jesus came to save sinners. That's the bedrock of our hope. That is the bedrock of our hope, that Jesus has come to the world to save sinners. That's what we were before Christ. And to some degree, we still struggle there. But it's interesting here what he says. We've heard this before. Do you ever catch, he says, of whom, not I was, who I am the foremost. You'll find that Paul is very clear on his, our new identity in Christ. He makes that abundantly clear in 2 Corinthians. We, we, we are not, the old has passed, the new has come. It's also clear that Paul captures in Romans 7, and even here to some degree, that there is a struggle with sin. That though we live in a world of victory in Christ, we live in a world where we struggle with sin. Why is Paul saying, I am the foremost? Well, he's already kind of cluing us in to his former life. He's cluing us into the fact that he was awful. He persecuted and approved of deaths and and stood by while Stephen was stoned. He was present for all that. So yes, that's part of why he says, I am the foremost. But if Romans 7, we take that at face value, we know that Paul still had an ongoing battle with sin because we, have, we live in the flesh. You too have an ongoing battle with sin. I have an ongoing battle with sin. And so what is the comfort here? Not to say who's the worst sinner, Paul or me, but what is the answer to our struggle with sin? God's mercy so that we're not trying to gut it out on our own and just trying to keep our head down and power through, that we have a fountain of mercy in Christ to drink from daily. And so we don't have to argue who's the worst sinner. We're all the worst, all of us. But it doesn't matter because we have Christ, and Christ is leading us to victory. That's why we sang, lead on, O King Eternal, this morning. Lead us on. Lead us and give us grace to follow. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me the foremost Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Precisely because Paul was the worst, God took an opportunity to... Well, there's a song lyric that says, it's a symphony of mercy... God took an opportunity to give a symphony of mercy in the life of Paul when he pulls him up off that road to Damascus. I mean, you know, we know who Paul was. We know what he did. We know the life he lived. We know the the evil things that he had done. And God said, that's the one I want. That's the one I'm going to use. I'm going to take him out of the pit. I'm going to cleanse his former sin. I'm going to give him hope and life and a message. And this is going to be my voice 
to the nations. Who else can do that? When I think about Brad Williams in my life and where I was and that God snatched me out of the, of the fire, I mean, people, there were people when Rachel and I first got married who thought I was joking when I told them I was a pastor. And they laughed. I mean, one guy, I told him I worked for a church. He said, what, like a janitor or something? I said, no, I'm actually the youth pastor. He's just like, no, no. Those types of mercies are so awesome that God does that. And we all have those stories where we can see that the mercy of God is so vital. And Paul is saying, but because I was the worst, because I'm the foremost, that God showed mercy so that I will be an example to the world and an example of the patience of God. God withheld what we deserve because He sees our deep need. He laid what we deserve on Christ, and now the needy, broken, lost people, He restores. So Paul says, I'm a picture of what God wants to do with sinners. You know what I love about this? It's at the end of the day, what this is telling us is what the heart of God is toward His people toward sinners who are lost and broken and destitute. The heart of God toward those people is mercy. Is mercy. Now, God brings truth. God brings a hard word. God challenges us to be transformed, but it's none of it is outside of His overarching mercy for the lost and for the broken. So I love that we see God's heart here for sinners that this perfect patience, the perfect patience of Christ, what does it lead to? What it leads to is faith to believe in Him and life for eternal life. Thank God for His patience because it's led to faith in Brad Williams and faith in you if you're believing this morning, and it's led us to eternal life so that we are so secure <laughs> that God speaks of us as already being in heaven in the book of or, uh, Ephesians. Well, this naturally leads Paul to that space that I, we just talked about a few moments ago, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All these character traits of God, that he is immortal, doesn't die. He's invisible because he's spirit, the only God. He's the eternal one. This leads to praise and proclamation, and that's exactly what mercy should do. As we think of the mercy of God in our own lives, it should compel us to praise. It should compel us to worship. So as we see mercy in its salvific side, that it saves is what I mean, there's also another side to it, though. It's by the mercies of God we are compelled to service. That's certainly what Paul is Paul was saying, God's mercy compelled me to serve. He's telling Timothy, let the mercy of God compel you to serve. Like, why do we contend with what is false? Because God's mercy is true, and we want people brought under the mercy of God, not living a lie. So that contending for truth then becomes an act of mercy and grace. So mercy saves, but it also empowers us to some degree. Paul says here, this charge or this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you might wage the good warfare. So this command, 
that Paul gave him. He's kind of revisiting back the charge that Timothy's had. He's reiterating this charge that Timothy now has to continue to preach truth, especially to the false teachers and those who would uh, come into the church confused. But I love this. This is such an affection. There's such an affection here. Timothy, my child. You see this fatherly Paul who is not just giving Timothy his marching orders. Now just go do it. It, it, it's a father sending a spiritual son, like, lovingly. Like, I've just given you these truths now, my son, whom I love and whom I trust. Go and charge those in your midst and be faithful. Kind of a beautiful way of how discipleship should work. As we are discipling one another, that there does, there does an affection comes up, and we share a love between us uh, that is rooted in Christ. And so that their victories, we, we rejoice, and there are victories, and their failures, we weep, and there are failures, not because it's our fault, but because we are with them. I love that connection that Paul and Timothy have, and it comes out in Paul's writing. Paul tells Timothy, he says it here, to, to wage the good warfare. Well, the foundation of how Timothy is going to do that is based on the mercy of God in his life, life to fight the good fight by the mercies of God. Now, Paul mentions prophecies here, and it's rather vague. Uh, it, we don't, it doesn't, doesn't make it clear if, if there were prophecies specifically about Timothy's work in Ephesus or if they were about Timothy's ministerial life as a whole. And it doesn't really matter uh, which way you go on that. Either way, it's, you're going to be speculating. All it, what it does mean, though, is that God has called Timothy to labor and serve. There is a calling on his life, and that's why he's there to do this work. And here's what I'll say to you. Maybe you're not called to be a pastor or, or what. We are all called, are all called, are all called, sorry, couldn't get it out, um, to be involved with our local bodies in a discipleship way, to get involved and lead some and follow some and shepherd some and be shepherded and get involved in the, in the grind of other people's lives so that we can labor and serve God, and so that the world can see us in the element in which it's supposed to, is the bride of Christ. And so, we need to be involved in each other's lives, like Paul and Timothy were. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then he tells him how he's got to do this how he's got to wage the good war warfare, he's going to need faith and a good conscience. Now, those might, you might think, faith, okay, but a good conscience, that he can, with a good conscience, go and proclaim truth knowing that it's right, that he can keep a sound mind, a, be a man of integrity, and call the errant brothers to belief and back to faith. Because he says, by rejecting this, so, rejecting faith and a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, and among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. We'll get there in just a second. So, Timothy's going to need this faith in Christ. He's going to need a good conscience, a conscience that's built on the truth of Christ, not anything else, because without them, you fail. But if you let your eyes glance back up to verse 5 in 1 Timothy, Paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So <laughs> Paul is telling Timothy, you need to bear the fruit of the command. 
You need to have a good faith. You need to have a, a sincere conscience, or a sincere faith and a good conscience, rather. Because without them, you're going to fail. Without them, you're going to be shipwrecked on hidden reefs. Without them, you're going to be swayed by every wind of teaching. So when we root ourselves in the faith, and it produces faith in us, and we keep a good conscience, i.e. a conscience that is built on the Word of God, we are secure in Christ. We are firm. We are on the right path. It's when we allow other things to get in there that we start veering off and we shipwreck our faith. He gives two examples of men who've shipwrecked their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says, "...whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme." Uh, so we have an issue here that we need to clear up. What does he mean by turn them over to Satan? Well, that's Paul's way of speaking about church discipline. It's not, this is not the only place he says that. And so when Paul talks about turning someone over to Satan, he's talking about imposing church discipline. We can clearly see that they've been excommunicated. So what are the implications of that? Well, in a practical way, they had some sort of, deci- or they had some sort of decided membership that Hymenaeus and Alexander could be put out of something meant they had to be a member of something. And it also, we also know that by this time they had a clear-cut form for church discipline that people understood. But when he says, I put them out or turn them over to Satan that they may, not learn, how to bla- that they may learn not to blaspheme, we need to also understand that he's teaching them their great need for God's mercy and the goal of this is not to just leave them in Satan's hands. It's to see them restored fully and finally. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant for them or Paul. But that's the goal when church discipline is done correctly and honestly and truly and motivated from a heart of love. The whole goal is to always welcome the errant brother or sister back in love and repentance. That's exactly what Paul was trying to work out in verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul's saying they need to learn the truth. They need to learn their own need for mercy. So we think about mercy. We've looked at it briefly this morning. It, It rescues us, doesn't it? It does. It really does. We're rescued by the mercies of God. And it empowers us. God uses His works of mercy to both rescue and empower. Most Christians recognize that mercy is an essential part of our salvation. I wonder how often we recognize the mercies of God that give the strength we need to do what must be done. It's a God's mercy that we have the abilities to do the things that we do. You know, when Jesus was teaching, He made the statement, that he who has been forgiven much loves much, right? The whole point of that is the one who's been shown a great deal of mercy is willing to be merciful. The lesson for you and me as we think through that is this. If God has shown us great mercy in our lives, how can we be living conduits of mercy to other people? How can we show the mercy of God more and more to our neighbors and in our families and in our community and our workspaces and every other place where we have relationships? And since the mercy of God is new every morning, we have an opportunity to daily lay our lives down and live in His strength. I don't do that very well. I I can lay my life down and I'm so often trying to pick it back up and pick it back up and God's mercy 
is that He's patient with me. And God's mercy is that sometimes it's severe enough where I have to learn a hard enough lesson that, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. We have opportunities to love hard and pursue people with abandon. We have opportunities to be conduits of truth for the Lord. And God's mercy is not just about what we get to avoid. It's so often what we get to be a part of, what we get to see and do. And so we should thank God daily for His mercy. Thank God daily for the things He's withheld and the things He's given. Thank God daily for those moments that have been so difficult but have produced such great fruit and those moments that have been so joy-filled, that have been balm for our souls, and then pray for opportunities to be a conduit of mercy in the lives of people around you. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time this morning, for this paragraph, and for the reminder of the rich mercy that we have in Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to be jubilant over the mercy that you've given. Help us to be praise-filled over the mercy that you've given. God, thank you for the mercy in my life. Thank you for that night in September when you compelled me to receive salvation and your grace overflowed and gushed over all my sin. I thank you so much. And I thank you for every testimony in this room who calls you Lord because your grace has also gushed over their sin. Father, your mercy is rich and beautiful and true. May we live it, love it, and proclaim it. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.